cliffcentral.com. All right. So um, I hope your day is off to an awesome start this morning. I hope that you're ready to take on all kinds of exciting things. We also have uh, the author of a book who is joining us uh, this morning. Her name is Nikki, and she has just written an incredible memoir called Fraud, which is a powerful story of unmasking the self. It's a tale of a young mother who's forced to examine a life of lies and deceit from behind bars. That's right. An unexpected encounter in a grimy prison that gives her the wings to fly free. So it's a true story. She was sent to Nopuert, uh, a rehab center in the remote northern Cape run by a pastor who brandished a tattoo of Satan. And in this hellhole, she met Jake, a handsome son, a son of a wealthy Afrikaans family. And uh, this is all from somebody who had a terrible heroin addiction and has rebuilt her life from the start after that. And I thought this would be an interesting story to get into. You know, very often uh, we have famous people that come in, they tell us, oh, you know, my life's been really hard. I, I uh, drank too much at one point or, you know, I had this problem or whatever, but I got over it. Very seldom do we speak to someone whose life actually unraveled to the point where they ended up in prison. Mm. Right, Laban? Yeah, no, literally. But it, it's also true that it's as soon as you start fixing things, those things from the past find themselves creeping in and just revealing themselves. So it's always interesting to see like how people deal with that. So that's what I'm I'm interested to to chat about today. Well, her name is Nikki Munitz. She's with us now. Hey Nikki, how are you? Good morning. I'm good. Thanks. How are you guys? Good. good. How the hell does someone like you, who comes from a private Jewish school in Joburg, who uh you know, has a family who care about her. How the hell do you end up in, first of all, Noport, which is this notorious rehab center? We always hear about it in the news. It seems to uh, occasionally get a couple of people off of the drugs, but it seems also to be full of real psychopaths who just want to inflict all kinds of harm on people. Um, certainly, that's the impression we get from the stories that sometimes come out about this place. There are also lots of people who say, oh, no, it's been terrific for me. But then you also end up in prison. Mm. Wow. Uh, I didn't I didn't just end up in prison. I was I was eight years clean when I landed up in prison. <laughs> so yeah, All the right. story a, a bit of a back to front um a consequence that came to bite me many years later. Um, and all of this came about because you support Liverpool. Unbelievable. Right, you know, this is why <laughs> if it was because I supported Liverpool, it would have been worth it. <laughs> All right, let's be serious for a second. So tell us the story. I mean, I don't mean for you to give up the whole reason that people should read the book, yeah. but how does this happen? Where did, where did your life start to unravel? I think my life started to unravel from, uh, you know, the very beginning. Um, it was a complete setup, every piece fitting perfectly in order to create that perfect storm. Um, yeah. You know, I did this inner child workshop the other day and I found this picture of myself at school and I was amongst the top achievers and I had colors all the way down my blazer and I had the biggest smile on my face and would have been voted least likely to stuff their lives up. Hmm. Um, but internally, that isn't how I felt or what I was experiencing at all. You know, it was all just so, the facade. What, would, what was going on internally? Were, were you suffering from... Severe depression? Did you have uh, did you have more severe mental illnesses than that? Was there a lot of anxiety? Were you on medication? Like, how does it all begin? Because you sound like uh, 
you know, the kind of daughter that most parents would dream of having? Mm. I think I was the kind of daughter that most parents dream of having. I think my family wasn't the family that most kids dream of having. Um, and I really just spent my time, you know, kind of pretending that everything was okay when it really, really wasn't. Um, and I, I, I thought that what I was experiencing was really different to what everyone else was. I now know, especially since publishing the book, that that's not the case. A lot of people grow up in really dysfunctional homes, probably the majority of people. Right, but um, how, dis how dysfunctional? Well, I mean, I, I was the last child of four, the baby of four. I've got three older brothers. Um, my father died just before I turned 10. So my mom had four children, all under the age of 18. And, and she was quite mentally unstable. She is still alive. So if she's listening to this, um, you know, I, I, I will tell her that to her face. And I think to some degree she knows that. But I think she doesn't understand or acknowledge how that uh, severely impacted me. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, drugs, we know, are a bigger problem now than they probably were when you and Lebang and I were at school and at varsity and post that time. Because I think a lot of people, it's just become very mm, ordinary for people to yeah. be doing drugs. And I suppose that most people think, ah, oh, well, what's the harm? You know, I just smoke a bit of weed every now and then. Or maybe they do something a little bit more hectic than that. But heroin is always the one that you hear. You think, no, 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 no. That's the thing that I oh. definitely, none of my friends do any heroin. Yeah. That was always like the worst of them all. Like it's like entry level is weed and then it mm. gets a little bit more hectic. But like heroin was always like quite scary. How, how yeah. was, yeah. How did that, was that like a res, as a result of, you know, how you grew up and how you felt um, as, 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 as a child? Yeah. You know, for me, I felt exactly the same. You know, cocaine was okay. Heroin was terrifying. And when I met the person that introduced me to it, you know, he said to me, don't believe what you see in the movies. It's all dramatized and it's really not that bad. And, you know, you'll be able to have a big night out and, and you can use heroin and you can go to sleep and you can be okay the next day. And I believed him. Um, and so I tried it. And it wasn't that bad the first time. Hmm. So how, how does, because heroin is different, that you, you have to inject it, right, for starters? No, no. Initially no. I started, no. <laughs> That's why I thought, you know, like what I saw in the movies was not true. Because, yes, you can inject it, obviously, but that wasn't how I initially started. I started snorting it and smoking it. Um, and what I didn't know is that it became so quickly physically addictive. So hmm. within three days, I was already in trouble. Wow, three, three days. days. And and what does it do to you that made you so addicted? Like, what does it feel like to do heroin? It feels like the ultimate euphoria. You know, there was an experiment done with baby guinea pigs that, you know, every time you took them away from their mothers, they would scream. Mm. Then they gave them heroin and they wanted nothing to do with their mothers anymore. Damn. And for me, that was the most perfect explanation of what heroin gave to me. It was like I thought I had found the Holy Grail. Um, that was really the experience for me. So it's just it's it's just this absolutely you see you use the term euphoria. It's just this perfectly happy, satisfied, warm, fuzzy, life is Sorry. great feeling that is the opposite, I suppose, for a lot of people of their reality. 
Absolutely. Just feeling like I needed for nothing anymore, you know, that I'd had that that warm hug that I'd been craving so badly. I now had it. You know, it was there for me. Yeah. And so it was also filling a hole in your life. I mean, it, it wasn't just it wasn't just like a recreational drug that was making you feel extremely happy for that time that you were on it, but it was also closing up wounds that you had from family and from growing up and things that you were definitely missing. You know, I'm always reluctant to, you know, say that to blame something of why I use drugs. And of course, you know, I run a rehab and, and, you know, we teach our clients to take responsibility, but the reality is, you know, this is a survival mechanism Hmm. and no one becomes addicted to drugs just because, you know, it's random. It's not random at all. You know, Mm. it's fitting, it's filling some need that I'm unable to, to meet in any sort of healthy way. Um, And that's the perfect storm. (laughs) Nikki, how old were you when you when you first, you know, started using heroin? And and also, what was the point where it was like, okay, I need help now? Or was it a case of you didn't identify you need help, but maybe somebody in the family was like, we our child needs help? Like, what was that turning point? And when exactly did you start? Like, how old were you? I was 17 uh, when I started. And within two weeks, I already knew that I needed help. It's mm. so funny because all my drug addict friends were like, oh, you need help, you know. <laughs> when your drug addict friends are saying to you, like, there's a problem here, um, you know that it's it's pretty serious. But it took me quite a while to actually get the help that I really needed. You know, mm. there were some, you know, interventions of going to stay with my brother for a bit and him pumping me full of marijuana in order to try and deal with any sort of withdrawal. Wow. And there was a trip to, to try and get me away uh, till I eventually went to to rehab the first time, which I didn't take seriously. I mean, I was 18 um, and still had a, a lot to learn. Um, and I was in Noport. I turned 21 in Noport. So that process was was relatively quick. Yeah. 21st birthday in, in a rehab center. That's not sure. how most uh, people want to see their 21st birthday mm. in. So, all right, let's just talk about Noport for a second because I'm still trying to figure out whether this place gets a hard rap just because they do hard work with people who really need to be treated in a very harsh way sometimes because they're not going to break out of their bad habits any other way or whether this place is just, you know, run by psychopaths. So it's hard to figure out what's true. Tell me what Noport is. Tell me where it is for starters because it sounds very mysterious. Um, and, and, And what kind of... Uh, means and methods they use to get people off of drugs? You know, I can tell you what it was like then. I think it's changed somewhat now. I mean, I was there in 2001, giving away my age here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it was very different. There were no professionals at all. It really was run by psychopaths. <laughs> um, and people also starts to get um, and I, I don't think it's changed too much, um, but they have brought in some social workers and things like that. You know, the, the methodology is there is that the only pull that you need is the gospel. Um, oh, so and filling the hole with another. Hmm. And, and, and when you complain about anything, the response is, you know, if the crack house didn't kill you, then the off food certainly won't. <laughs> but, but, I mean, you weren't yeah. even Christian, so them pushing Christian stuff down your throat, was that a 
tactic they just didn't care about or oh yeah that's not optimal really you know church for five hours on a sunday oh. two hours every tuesday and thursday like everything is um bible based but not for me not the true uh, like definition of but rather just their version that they can use it in order to try and control you and manipulate the situation yeah. it's very strange okay so i mean did they help you at all is the point because yeah. uh, if, if you got out of there and you and you were uh, clean in inverted commas then maybe that did give you a chance to start again or did it not help you well i think i was really grateful to have a bed to sin and three meals a day um, but it didn't, I, I thought that my solution was finding my ex-husband and getting married and having my own family. Um, you know, that was how I managed to have this pseudo recovery for just under eight years before I relapsed again. Um, so they never actually taught me any skill tools that were going to be beneficial. If anything, my life took a severe nosedive and my consequence was about 50 million times worse than anything that I had ever experienced in the past. So just yeah. uh, explain the story of, of this guy that you met uh, in, in rehab because this, this husband that you ended up um, marrying, this guy you met in rehab, which is always yeah. a good place to meet someone. You know, if you're not on Tinder, guys and girls, if you're not on Tinder or on Bumble or on Hinge, you could always go to rehab to find the love and of your love. life. From one drug to you know, the other. You know what they say when you find someone in rehab or in a 12-step meeting to get into a relationship, that the odds are good that you're going to find someone, but the goods are odd. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that you should be really mindful um, of, of what you bring home with you. Um, so he was gorgeous, um, and that was obviously my first attraction. And he was really funny, and he told me everything that I wanted to hear. I had grown up. You know, as I said, my mom had four children under the age of 18. She was a single parent. Finances were tough. And his parents had dropped him off in a Rolls Royce, which I actually didn't know at the time. Um, but the discussions that we landed up having was, you know, I wanted to make you my wife and fight with you over the credit card bill. And I was like, right, where do I sign? <laughs> like, I'm in. You got scammed. Wow. You see, because uh, drug addiction doesn't just hit poor people or very rich people. It hits everybody. And uh, this is, I suppose, the hardest thing is that, you know, a lot of uh, very wealthy people go, oh, no, well, it could never happen to us because our child was raised with resources and means. And there's no way he'd end up on the street doing whatever he needed to do for his cocaine or his heroin or anything else. Right. That's bullshit. Well, I mean, you only need to look at a huge chunk of celebrities to know that that's bullshit. All right, so you you kind of fall in love with this guy, and um, you 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 realize that it's not all, you know, a bed of roses. Uh, first of all, holding anything together, including your own sanity, when you're an addict, is tough. We know that, and and I'm pleased to hear that you're running your own rehab. We'll talk about that in a second, but then to to be sharing a relationship with someone who is also an addict. Both of you are fragile. You've met under the circumstances of being addicts. Mm. You're now going to start uh, a family together. I I predict a lot of crying. <laughs> a lot of toxicity, perhaps, even. 
But you guys make it sound so simple that you could just see. I couldn't see a thing. I really was completely blind. I thought this was love. He came from a family where his parents were still married. His sisters both have doctorates. And I was like, this is an amazing family that I'm getting involved with. Um, and there was a draw for me. They were quite a hectic family in terms of things that they had been through. Um, and, and it made them feel quite powerful. And I, was, I felt really grateful that they kind of included me as one of their own. What I yep. didn't know is that the reason they were taking me in was to have me as kind of a living babysitter for their son. <laughs> right. Oh, that's now, so that's, messed up. That's interesting because obviously they were sick of looking after him and he was a problem. Now it needed to be your problem as well, not just theirs. Correct. Correct. And I took that job on, you know, no problem, you know, under this premise that, first of all, I didn't really know what it meant to be a wife. Um, mm. You know, I was really young mm. when my dad died. And as I said, I came from dysfunction. So, like, I thought that was kind of the role that I needed to play. Mm. Um, I also, you know, coming in the type of abuse that uh, transpired in the relationship, real physical abuse, emotional, mental, you know, I really believed for a long period of time that it was me. Um, I also had grown up being told that I was the problem, even by my own biological family, you know. So I thought I made him do those things to me mm. and I needed to be better. And so I, I spent just almost 10 years trying to be better. Yeah, and, and because you know that you aren't a perfect person in any way, shape or form and you know that you're susceptible to a bunch of things, there's a tendency also to blame yourself for stuff that you aren't even responsible for i.e. the stuff that your husband is doing or the stuff that other people are doing to you, yeah. you go, yeah. oh, well, I was, I was wrong on the drugs. I must be wrong on everything. Sure. And at that point, if you've been doubting yourself your most of your life, it's easy to slip right back into that space of anxiety. Like it, growing up, I was told I was wrong. I was the problem. Now I'm in rehab. I'm Clearly, I'm the problem. Now I'm in this marriage. Of course, I'm still this ongoing problem. Nikki, what was that turning point for you in the marriage where you're like, actually stop the clocks? Because you know they always say that um, a woman or whoever's being abused in a marriage, they'll try to leave the first time, they'll try to leave the second time, but they'll only actually leave like the seventh or eighth time. So what what was it for you like that was the camel that broke? What? The straw that that, that saying? What Probably was that moment for you? Thank you, Gareth. When were you for just me, like hot fall? Yeah. For me, it did feel like the camel that broke the straws back. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I think that I didn't really, I was almost forced into the situation, you know, after the, the crime happened and the arrest, which, you know, I'll talk more about, my my legal team actually said to me, you know, now's the time you, you need to go. And I think it was more being driven by my children and wanting to protect them than to protect myself. I think if I didn't have kids, I probably would have stayed and, and died there. Um, yeah, so, you know, seeing my son crawling around with a syringe in his hand that he had found, oh a used God. syringe, um, that was a big kind of factor for me, but I, I, I only half left. I still live, we were living in Pretoria at the time, and I moved into another house in Pretoria, um, but it took my legal team saying to me, listen, this family is going to burn you, like you need to pack up your kids and go. Um, that was the catalyst for me, yeah. And at this at this stage, were you getting like any support from your family? Like how was your relationship with your mom at the stage and your brothers? Was anybody 
you know there for you while you were going through all of this on your own um so i had partly um moved away he had uh, you know kind of estranged me from my family um so i, I had started having contact with him because i had no choice being arrested will do that to you you know you got to make the phone call and who do i call um and yeah, so I, I was quite distant from them, but the process of, of reaching out to them had started, um, but it was still quite awkward. I was quite alone initially um, mm. yeah, during that period. And obviously during this time also financial constraints because the money's being spent on drugs. you got kids that need food, that need clothing, that need care. Um, so there must have been a lot of pressure on the, on the, the purse strings. Absolutely. I mean, the, the interesting part for me is that I actually got clean um, like three months before I got arrested um, for the crime. So I, I was I was clean at the time when this when when my son was crawling around with a syringe. It wasn't mine. It was my my ex's. Um, and so, yeah, for me, it was that process of change had already started. Mm. Nikki, let's talk a bit about the crime. I mean, you know, starting with this habit and the drugs uh, side of your life and essentially moving away from that because now you've been able to identify how dangerous that is, not only for yourself, but most importantly for your kids. Now, mm. how do you move from that into a uh, criminal? Mm. <laughs> Very easily, believe it or not. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, it's for me... You're already a lawyer, so I mean that helps you. <laughs> I wasn't a lawyer, but I worked for a lawyer. I was as a, a legal secretary, um, right. and I had access to the trust account. Mm. Um, not a good combination, um, and very much like drugs, I had this idea that I'd just do it once, and I'd put the money back, and I wouldn't do it again. Mm. And um, yeah, once became thirty-seven times. Before Jesus. you know, I actually how much money were you meant to have uh, stolen? Two and a half million. Correct. Correct. Oof. Yeah. So when you go to court for stealing two and a half million, that's a fraud case. You end up going to jail for how long? What's the sentence there? So initially, I got sentenced to eight years, which is why yeah. this trans like it went on for so long, and why I was eight years clean when I went in. The crime happened in two thousand and seven. I was under investigation and only arrested in two thousand and nine. Uh, originally sentenced in twenty eleven, and only went in serving my sentence in twenty fifteen. Good lord. Okay, so mm. while you're doing all of this, you're fighting this in court, you're trying not to go to jail and you end up going to jail. Life carries on and you've got kids. Um, those that you can't just put the kids on pause, say, all right, mommy's no. got some shit to deal with. So what happens right to back. them during this mm. time? I changed my life and I tried to live as best as I could that this wasn't happening. And I really believed in my mind that if, if I did all the right stuff that you know, there would be some other resolution that would take place. And I landed up getting this incredible job at, you know, one of the most prestigious rehabs in South Africa and really working myself up from an admin job to like a junior counselor all the way up to the most senior. And, you know, really, I believe, you know, giving all of myself and, and growing in a career that I believe is my purpose. Um, and thinking there's no ways after I've changed my life the way that I have that I'll go to jail. T 
turns out God had other plans and I still did go to jail. Um, but at that time, I mean, I went to prison with the most incredible support. My husband that I'm married to today, he supported me and my children when I went into prison. Uh, my employer paid my salary while I was still in, while I was in prison. Like I had the most incredible support network. And so for me, I understand now that all of that preparation got me ready to be able to go and do something that was going to be really difficult. Yeah. Mm, had had you had that happened at any other time? Sure, Lord knows. It probably wouldn't yeah, have yeah. been, yeah, it wouldn't have been the same, the same result. Yeah. Nikki, you know, listening to you, I'm just thinking about, you know, the term everything happens for a reason, right? Do you believe that you experienced all of that as some sort of like you know, testimony or like for you to be able to write your book or for you to even just be able to sit here and speak to myself and Gareth today, just so that other people can hear your story. Like it's a lot, it's a lot for one person, but it almost mm. sounds as though you've come to terms with the fact that you had to go through that and experience that. Prison besides my children and my marriage is the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, it wow. gave me perspective on my life. And I landed up doing a course on self-esteem in prison that changed how I see myself, how I see the world, and the work that I do today. Um, and I believe that it is the cornerstone of our existence and why people land up so self-destructive in their behavior is this particular area of lack. And so the work that I do and the facility that I run is all based around self-esteem development and making those changes that people no longer need to live in a survival mode um, because that's what I believe my life was pretty much. The book, the book is called Fraud, but it's it's a it's a play not only on your crime, but the fact that you were a fraud. You 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 weren't being your your real self, and I think a lot of people go through their lives, and they never really encounter their real selves until it's too late. So when you talk about things like self worth, and and figuring out self esteem and things like that, which which people a lot of very very capable, very brilliant people don't know how to access this part of themselves where they actually finally think that they're worthy. Um, many people in South Africa could benefit from this, and I know that this is part of your practice, but was there an aha moment or was it just as a result of working hard day in, day out, repeating mantras to yourself, reading stuff, uh, sitting around with people who actually know what they're talking about and, and listening carefully to them and internalizing that stuff? How does it come about? You're absolutely right. Most people think self-esteem is about confidence. But for me, the reality was that if I think about my job, I was really confident. I knew I was good at what I did, but I still felt like a worthless piece of shit <laughs> simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And so the self-esteem work was about getting to that place where I no longer felt like I was, you know, pretending to play a role. And what I was telling people versus how I felt was different because that's pretty much how I lived. Um, and it's about reparenting and reprogramming because the information that gets given to us from the time we're born is it's incorrect. Um, and I believe as adults, we spend our lives redoing the programming that was given to us, you know, from our parents unintentionally a lot of the time. Um, mm. We need to kind of re-put that information into this computer processor so that we see ourselves in the world differently. 
Yeah. I I love that reparenting and reprogramming. It's it literally is every day that's what we're like slowly doing. Sometimes consciously, mostly subconsciously. Nikki, how's your relationship with your kids now? Um, you know, like having had you for a little bit and then like you were gone and then are you guys cool now? Do they ever, you know, are you open about your experience in prison mm-hmm. with them? Are they like completely involved? What's that like? And you know, being on the other side of it all. Um, my relationship with them is amazing. It's so funny. This morning on Facebook, I was reading, someone was asking a question. I had a drug addiction 18 years ago, and now my daughter's 16. Someone has asked me to come and talk to their kids. My daughter knows nothing about it, and we've got this incredible relationship I don't want her to know. I sat thinking, do you have an incredible relationship if they don't even know who you were or who you are? Um, And for me... Honesty has always been the cornerstone um, of my relationship with my children. Mm. I never wanted them to doubt their reality in the way that I doubted mine. Sure. Um, that's a, a, so that's a it's always thing. been a part of did, did it take you a while to start being honest with people about the, the stuff that you'd been through, or was it just impossible to hide? Because there's one, one sh- you know, side of that which is about being brave and courageous, the other side which is like you just can't. You can't get away from this. People will know if you've been. How long were you in jail for again? Nine and a half months. What's that like, that experience? Because I don't know much about women's prisons. I don't think they're very much better than men's prisons in South Africa. They may even be uh, worse in some ways. Uh, what what happens to you in there, and what's that experience like? Just give us the give us the kind of the top line stuff about you know. Here's the average day in a women's yeah. prison in South Africa. Is it like in the movies? It, it, it is worse than the movies. <laughs> oh. um, the, you become a number. You come into prison, they take your normal clothes, you get given a uniform, you lose your name, you just get a number. That's your identification. Um, and you're in a cell with like 38 other prisoners. Um, sharing one bathroom, one toilet that doesn't even have a door, it's kind of got a sheet around it, um, and two showers that you get five minutes in in the middle of the night because that's the only time the water gets hot. So you're locked up from two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, you hang a chip packet next to your bed in order to catch cockroaches so that they don't climb onto you in the middle of the night, and you wake up at like 11 o'clock midnight so you can have a five-minute shower and go back to sleep before they come wake you up up at 7 a.m. for your parade where you stand outside and they count you and check you. Um, yeah, it's a, not, not a pleasant experience. And and I've had people, you know, I was listening to your last thing about people getting away with crimes and things. I think, damn, why wasn't that me? <laughs> you know, but essentially I'm pretty grateful that, you know. So to sum- summarize, you would not recommend prison. You would not say this oh, is like yeah. a five out of ten on Yelp. Not on the bucket list, no. Not, not on the bucket list. And, and people think I wasn't punished enough um, in nine and a half months. But let me tell you, one night in prison um, was not worth the 2.5 million in terms of experience. You know, I'm really glad that my story unfolded the way that it did and that I got to learn about myself um, in the way that I did. But wow, it's not a nice place. Really not a nice place. Sure. I mean, it's 2.5 million as well you know that's that's quite a bit of money you know i think the, the burning question that everybody wants to know is you know nikki what, what does a person do with 2.5 million um well 
unfortunately, I'd love to say I've got something to show for it. I really don't. Um, you know, anything of value that I did purchase, I sold in order to pay back whatever I could. Mm. Um, a, a huge chunk of the money was given out to my um, ex and his father, um, and the rest are used on drugs. You know, like um, it, there was nothing to show for it in the end. Oh, isn't it isn't it very very difficult not to slip back into the drugs when you're in jail because there's nothing else really and and although you had your kids on the other on the outside waiting for you and you know you had this support structure in, for, in the form of your new husband and you had an employer so you had a job to get back to at the end of it all uh, nine months is a long time there must have been many moments of despair there where you thought my life is over like there's no one who's going to accept me back into society. Um, nobody's going to go, oh, hey, Nikki, and invite me around like they might have before. Uh, I'll have to start from scratch. Maybe it's better if I just end it, or why don't I just take all the drugs? I must say I did sometimes have those thoughts, um, especially ma marijuana is super easily accessible. Other drugs they do use, but it's it's not quite as prevalent as you would think, um, more challenging to get in. But, you know, as I said, I was eight years clean at the time. And for me, I always tell people that my heroin addiction was a life sentence and my prison sentence had an ending. Um, very different uh, in terms of my thinking around that. And I was also really blessed. You know, I, it sounds bizarre, but I came into prison and there was a woman who was on her way out. She had got her parole date. And she asked me if I would be willing to take over her job, which was as a domestic worker for one of the captains. And so I got a job quite quickly. And so I wasn't with the main population during the day, only really from lockup. Um, and I believe that that was by divine intervention um, wow. because I would have gone mm. mental sitting mm. around all day. Um, you know, I actually don't know what I would have done. <laughs> to mm. honest. And and what? How does the prison economy work? We're all fascinated by this. People have watched these series like Orange Is the New Black, or you've seen mm. movies like Shawshank Redemption, and you know we hear stories about gangsters in prison and how it all works. But what is currency in prison? What can you get? What can you not get? How easy is it to communicate to the outside? Uh, very easy, considering we all had cell phones, uh, and oh. the cell phones come from the prison wardens that you deposit money uh, into their bank accounts, and they deliver it to you. And at the same time, then will come the next morning and search for it, you know, um, as part of their jobs. Um, and the rest it's of like the time, the clients like it's like take a lot, but with the threat of it being taken away anytime you like. You know, you know, you're <laughs> well, not sure. You find the most incredible, like, creative ways to hide things. People make false bottoms in their coffee tins, in their hairdryer boxes, you know, giving it to other people. You pay people with cigarettes in order to hide things for you. Um, you can buy extra food with cigarettes. You can have your washing done with cigarettes. Um, yeah, cigarettes are main currency mm. within the prison. Yeah, but you can get anything. And, and Nikki, I mean, can you, you can't sit there in your cell with your, with your phone texting people or can you <laughs> well <laughs> uh, you, i hope i don't get into a lot of trouble for the people do they really do um and you know when the the prison wardens come and they do their they walk by because remember you're in your cell from two o'clock in the afternoon until seven the next morning and they come and check on you maybe 
twice or three times. So there's seven cells. So the first cell will see the prison warden and make like a noise. So the rest of the cells are warned, time to hide your cell phones. <laughs> and mm. then there's like a scurry and people do that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just... Uh, because uh, the minute you have a cell phone or you 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 can you know, occasionally get something nice, uh, even if you have to pay for it. Uh, prison doesn't sound so bad. It sounds just like most uh, Gen Z people's <laughs> daily lives, except that they can move around a lot more. Well, yeah, I mean, that is probably the biggest difference, the moving around part. I mean, I'm making light of it, but, you know, sure. when I got out of prison, um, I, I hadn't told anyone when I was actually coming out because I got bail and I landed up going back in again because I fought again at Supreme Court and um, when I came out the first time initially the thought was that I was going to miss Mother's Day mm. and um, my children's school landed up cancelling the Mother's Day celebration so that my kids wouldn't feel out I mean like this is kind of the uh -huh. level of support that we all had sure. so sure did we have privileges that we probably shouldn't have in prison absolutely but did we also miss out on a lot for sure. You know, I couldn't say goodnight to my children and I couldn't hug them. And, you know, um, my first visits were behind glass. There was no human contact whatsoever. Um, yeah, it, it, it is still very much a punishment. Mm. Mm. Nikki, how, how did you use your time in prison and your experience prior to that to fuel and influence the work that you're doing now? You mentioned briefly that, you know, you um, work at a rehab and you're obviously helping other people. How did you, you know, again, use your experience and everything that you went through to, you know, influence what you're doing today? Sure. So I think that in terms of the other prisoners there, for me, it was also a lead by example. So it was the way that I operated. Um, and it's still something that I live by today. Mm. Um, and you know, doing this course around self-esteem in prison. I, I came out of prison with a different knowledge of myself and realizing that mainstream rehabs do not offer this type of intervention to clients. Um, not, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's out of bad intention, but simply because it's not information that they have. And so I went on this massive quest to find out more. And the woman who designed the, the prison course is now my mentor today. I mean, she wasn't the woman running the course at the time, but I managed to track her down and I worked on my own self-esteem for about two years with her. Um, and then together we designed a course specifically to be utilized in a rehab setting. And now it's the main focus of the work that I do. And I run these workshops all over the world, um, which I mean, for someone like Gareth was saying, you know, I sit there thinking, what kind of life am I going to have? Let me tell you beyond my wildest imagination. That's the life that I actually do have. For mm. someone who was sitting in prison thinking at times, you know, who would actually want to be with me? Who wants to be my friend? I'm embarrassed my children. I've embarrassed myself. All of the shame I'm carrying around. Now mm. people like invite me to present on an international like stage. I'm like, how did that even happen? That's phenomenal. And and I think that's an important part of the story because there are probably a lot of people who are listening to us now, maybe maybe not so many, but there are maybe one or two who are listening to us now going, oh my God, my life is falling apart for whatever reasons, financial, health, relationships, whatever it might be. And they're listening to this going, well, you know, clearly 
you know, that's still better than prison and a heroin addiction and being separated from your children and everything that you went through. And now you're on the other side and life isn't just okay. You say it's beyond your wildest dreams, which gives the rest of us hope, you know, that there's, there's definitely a way out of everything. I mean, I think that's the most valuable thing that you could have said to answer LeBung's question. I love that. I think that's beautiful. Can I go back to prison quickly? I'm a little bit obsessed, but yeah, um, Gareth needs to know more about prison. Hmm. Ask away, ask away. What, is, what what is what is the the environment like? What are the other women like? Do they, is there a kind of a code? Um, how how does it work? Because it's a whole society that operates in there. Where are you allowed to go? Where are you not allowed to go? What exercise can you do? What do you eat? Sure. So, um, you know, there's two sections in the prison um, in terms of uh, your sentence. So if you're seven years and under, you're in one section and then seven years plus you're in a different section. Seven years plus seem to have a bit more freedom, which makes sense because you're in there for a lot longer period of time. Um, the section that I was in were kind of the repeat offenders, the petty criminals. They go in and out, in and out. That's their life. Um, and so I think what I experienced was um, quite different in that regard. Um, and so you can't go anywhere on your own. You need someone to open a gate for you every time you need to to leave one particular section. You need a, an escort with you. I was really privileged that I didn't have to have that because I worked for one of the most senior captains. You know, I could kind of come and go. Obviously, someone always had to open for me. Um, but I, I had a lot more privilege in that regard. Um, and I, I put that off to, like, the type of lifestyle that I was living that was completely clean and sober and um, already very honest, um, thankfully, at that point in time. Um, and yeah, it's just, you, you have no say over your own life. If you have a headache, you can't go and get a headache tablet. If, you know, you are, are wanting to, I don't know, go to the shop, um, to get something to drink, you can't do that. Um, what the food is like, well, uh, the morning is two slices of bread with some soya milk and some pup porridge, um, Lunch, uh, it, which is about 11 o'clock, is like a protein of some sort. So it could be a piece of burros or uh, two boiled eggs or a piece of chicken, some pup and some vegetables. Um, and then there isn't really dinner because, as I said, you're locked up from 2 o'clock. So you get one loaf of bread to share between five people. And then the cell will get like a packet that's got either um, peanut butter or jam or something that you can have you know, to eat in the evening. And once a month, you're allowed to go to Snoopy, which is the shop, um, and you get 400 rand. Your family's allowed to put into that shop, and you can buy things like, you know, I still get, like, called bully beef, you know, right? And you can get your um, and you can get your biscuits or whatever treats that you want or some pasta. Um, and, yeah, I mean, if you're hungry, like I said, cigarettes are, are the way to go. If I want more protein for lunch, I'm going to pay you um, five loose cigarettes and you're going to give me your piece of chicken. Um, so that's kind of the, the way. And when I came what out of prison, I looked at myself in the mirror. I was so pale. And my hair was falling out. And I said to my, he wasn't my husband then. He was my boyfriend at the time. And I said to him, why didn't you tell me I looked so bad? He goes, you were in prison. Did I need to make this life work? <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you miss? What do you miss the most when you're in there? 
What do you what are you now so thrilled that you experience every day that you just take for granted uh, before you go into prison and after you've been in there, you're like, this is something I will never ever take for granted again. Quiet and privacy. <laughs> really quieter because a lot of us seem to think that at night for example prison is quiet it isn't you know it can never be quiet when you're in a cell with 40 people you oh. know there is never there is never quiet um, and there's never anywhere to go where you can just have time on your own there's literally nowhere to hide yeah i think that that was the most challenging for me Mm. I, I enjoy my time um, to just catch my breath and to even think. You know? Um, yeah. You got any tattoos? We spoke about that earlier. <laughs> I was waiting for that question. I was waiting for guys. To ask. I, have, I have many, but none from prison. <laughs> okay. Very good. Very good. There, she's just proving my theory, right? Uh, <laughs> and you know, it's so funny because people have this like, you know, feeling towards me because I have all of these tattoos that I was quite scary, but that was all part of my mask, right? <laughs> you know, mm. at one stage I had really short hair, and they used to call me the short-haired, angry, tattooed girl. Um, you know, and I came into prison, and people were like, "Oh, you know, she's hardcore." Meantime, I'm just a squishy marshmallow, you know, and have always been on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, this is interesting. Max Sony says prison is more like a stream of constant cash for corrupt warders. The same guys that bring in contraband are the same guys who expose you. You're in their world, really. Shape up or ship out. Are you afraid of anything since you got out of prison? Because I would imagine that the one thing it does do for people is that you've seen the worst, right? You've seen how bad life can get. You've been at the very bottom. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it kind of makes you a little bit fearless in your own life? Um, I, well, am I afraid of anything? No, because I live with the knowledge that I can handle whatever comes across my path. I do believe mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, I'm really diligent about doing everything by the book these days. I never yeah. ever want to land up in a position, not only to go back to prison where people doubt me in that way. So I live a really authentic, open and transparent life. Yeah, because they're they're going to be looking for, <laughs> you're going to be looking for any reason to not believe you. You're like, exactly. oh, this is who stole money and she's a criminal. The prison lady, yes. Nikki. What what's yeah. the worst thing you saw in there? Like, did you ever see anything that was like, your 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 this is the bottom, or was it actually not as bad as it is in the movies? Well, I mean, I think it's a bit of a funny story, but not so funny. You know, I think it was one of the first visits that my, my husband came and he was mm -hmm. saying to me, oh, I made like a friend because, you know, the way they come to visit, they get on a bus, they park their cars, they get on a bus and they get transported to the prison before mm -hmm. they come in for the visit. And he was like telling me, I made friends with this family. And I was like, oh, yeah, their daughter's the murderer that had just been arrested recently. And he was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> You know, um, and just the most people, the people that you would look at and think, no way, not in a million years. People that had like done some really horrific things. Mm. And when you meet them, like, you're like, really? Did you really do that? Like, mm. I just can't believe it. Mm. Yeah. Sure. You know? So that was probably the most shocking. I, I saw fights and things. People, you know, they were times where people have fights and pour boiling water on each other we had kettles in the cell we could make tea and things um and then our kettles would get taken away 
um, which is really not nice, especially in winter. We all have hot water bottles. It's freezing in there. Um, and then we don't have kettles. <laughs> are, are there any like makeshift weapons, like with toothbrushes that are like carved at the edge into like a little spiky points? I mean, we've seen it all. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. So I never saw anything like that. The most dangerous weapon probably was the kettle. Um, but I, as I said, you know, in in the like more heavy sentence part of the prison, it might have been different. Mm, mm. Yeah. And uh, any any friends yeah. that you made that you're still friends with from prison? Friends is a really strong um, word. I, I really made some acquaintances while I was in there. You know, it was necessary in order to function. But the person I'm still in contact with is the captain. Oh, really? The one who you were the domestic worker um, for? She's mentioned. Absolutely. In fact, I gave her daughter a job when I came out of prison, and we're still in touch. Um, we speak relatively regularly. Um, she's an incredible woman. Yeah. And you didn't give her the daughter the job as a return for favors that uh, she'd given you in, in jail. <laughs> <laughs> Yes and no. It was as, a, as to say thank you because she really took care of me. But no, it wasn't a pre-arranged um, <laughs> thing. That, you know, if you help me, I'll help you. It was really just to say, like, I'm grateful. I'm really grateful that you took care of me. All right. So now you've got your own rehab, among other mm-hmm. things. Um, this is this is interesting. The bang already asked you what from your experiences has helped you to to do what you do now so much better and with so much more knowledge and understanding. Mm-hmm. But rehabilitation is very, very tough and it varies from person to person as I understand it. Is yeah. there any magic ingredient to rehab? Having gone through what you have, um, having seen it from you know people trying to convert you religiously and replace one addiction with another to people who uh, helped you to build up your self-esteem with that course that you did, which obviously is a big win for anybody who's addicted to anything. Because the moment you value yourself more than the drugs, your life will get better. But are there other things that you think come into play here psychologically? You know, absolutely. I think that um, there's two things from from the you know the treatment side with the addict themselves. It's compassion and understanding. Um, a lot of rehabs are only about. Uh, either letting people get away with things because they've got too much of a sympathy uh, for the client or they're too harsh and direct. You know, there needs to be a balance. And in terms of the family, it's about understanding that as you as you are the loved ones, you play a role in the dysfunction. So it's about also getting out of the way and letting the treatment unfold. Because um, often families interfere with the treatment process and land up, it backfires every time. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, I think if anybody's interested in this, and there'll be lots of people who will be interested in this, they should check out your book. This is what it looks like. It's called Fraud, How Prison Set Me Free, a memoir by Nikki Munitz. It's such a pleasure to spend time with you, Nikki, and thank you. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I mean, Thanks, it's more fun, than, more fun than jail, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Nick. Nice to see you.